Welcome back for the second episode of Mormon Mondays. This week we pick up the question, who is the Mormon God? So in this week's episode, we will look into the first article of faith. We believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. This sounds very Christian. It sounds orthodox. But what do they mean by these statements? They sound like they believe in the Trinity like any orthodox Christian. But do they really believe in one God and three persons, or do they believe in many gods? Does the Trinity have a place in Mormonism? The Godhead, as Mormons will call the Trinity, are three separate and distinct gods, but they are united in a singular purpose. Most Mormons will point to the fact that the word Trinity is never found in any of the scriptures to describe God. They will most likely claim that the Trinity is a pagan doctrine that arose in the apostate church centuries after the Bible was written. Spencer W. Kemble, who was president of the LDS from 1973 to 1985, once said, Joseph Smith knew, as no other living soul, these absolutes. He knew that God lives, that he is a glorified person with flesh and bones and personality like us and we like him in his image. He knew that the long-heralded trinity of three gods in one was a myth, a deception. He knew that the Father and the Son were two distinct beings with form, voices, and personalities. He knew that the gospel was not on the earth, for by the deities he had learned it, and the true church was absent from the earth, for the God of heaven and earth had so informed him. Joseph Smith himself openly denounced the trinity. Many men say there is one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are only one God. I say this is a strange God anyhow. Three in one and one in three. It is a curious organization. All are to be crammed into one God according to sectarianism. It would make the biggest God in all the world. He would be a wonderfully big God. He would be a giant or a monster. On March 11, 1998, President Gordon B. Hinckley said, the world wrestles with the question of who God is and in what form he is found. Some say that the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one. I wonder how they could ever arrive at that. How could Jesus have prayed to himself when he uttered the Lord's Prayer? How could he have met with himself when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration? No, he is a separate being. God our Father is one. Jesus Christ is two. The Holy Ghost is three. And these three are united in purpose and in working together to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Apostle James Talmadge says that Jesus Christ or Jehovah is designated in certain scriptures as the Father in no wise justifies an assumption of identity between him and his Father. Wolfer Woodruff, the fourth president of the LDS, referred to the openness of Mormon doctrine on the plurality of gods when he referred to both Brigham Young and Joseph Smith as gods in a lineage all the way back to Adam. Some have said that I was presumptuous to say that Brother Brigham was my God and Savior. Brother Joseph was his God, and the one that gave Joseph the keys of the kingdom was his God, which was Peter. Jesus Christ was his God, and the father of Jesus Christ was Adam. Apostle Heber Kimball, grandfather of President Spencer Kimball, also believed that he would one day be a Savior to many. From the Mormon scriptures, we can see a waffling between monotheism and a plurality of gods. 2 Nephi 11.7 states that the Father is the God of Christ, therefore Christ is subordinate to the Father. 2 Nephi 31.21 speaks of the ontological unity of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
This is paralleled in Alma 11.44, 3 Nephi 11.27, and Mormon 7.7. Mosiah 15.2-5 speaks of Christ of being both the Father and the Son. This is paralleled in Mormon 9.12 and Ether 3.14. Doctrines and Covenant 20 verse 28, 50 verse 43, and 93 verse 3 all speak of the oneness of God. Read also Doctrines and Covenant 121 verses 28 through 32, and then wrap up. Doctrines and Covenants 121 verses 28 through 32 says, A time shall come in the which nothing shall be withheld, whether there be one God or many gods, they shall be manifest. All thrones and dominions, principalities and powers shall be revealed and set forth upon all who have endured valiantly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And also, if there are bounds set to the heavens or to the seas or to the dry land or to the sun, moon, or stars, all the times of their revolutions, all the appointed days, months, and years, and all the days of their days, months, and years, and all their glories, laws, and set times shall be revealed in the days of the dispensation of the fullness of times according to that which was ordained in the midst of the counsel of the eternal God of all other gods before this world was, that should be reserved unto the finishing and the end thereof, when every man shall enter into his eternal presence and into his immortal rest. What does that mean? Is there one God or are there many gods? The Mormon will say, yes. And just expect you to accept that. Because, yes, there is one God, but he is the God above all other, other gods, which, especially Mormon males, are hoping to become themselves. So let's look at how they react to the persons of the Trinity. We start with God, the Eternal Father. When Mormons speak of God, they will typically refer to him as Heavenly Father. The Heavenly Father is the main God and progenitor of the ever-increasing Mormon pantheon. The biggest problem with the Mormon view of the Heavenly Father is that he was once a finite being who was fallen like Adam. Brigham Young spoke this way about the Heavenly Father and that a Mormon's main focus in life and the afterlife is to achieve his own godhood to make him the he Heavenly Father to make him the Heavenly Father to his own world. Doctrines and Covenants 130 verse 22 says, The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man. The Son also, but the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of the Spirit. Joseph Smith would further go on to say, God himself was once as we are now, and is an exalted man, and sits in yonder heavens. We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea, and will take away the veil, so that you may see. This is good doctrine. When I tell you of these things which were given me by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you are bound to receive them as sweet and rejoice more and more. President Wilford Woodruff said that God, while he was a man, received his temple endowments thousands and millions of years ago. Again, God's eternity can also be refuted from the Mormon scriptures. It's amazing how doctrines can become fluid depending on which passages you read. Mosiah 3.5 says, The Lord omnipotent is from all eternity and to all eternity. Doctrine and Covenant 20 verse 17 says, By these things we know that there is a God in heaven who is infinite and eternal, from everlasting to everlasting, the same unchangeable God, the framer of heaven and earth, and all things which are in them. 
Alma 18, 24-28 speaks of God as the Great Spirit and has never been a man. Mormons will attempt to downplay this teaching on the Father. This was most greatly exhibited by President Gordon B. Hinckley in 1997. In an interview, he was asked about the LDS's teaching on the Father having once been a man. He replied, I don't know that we teach it. I don't know that we emphasize it. I understand the philosophical background behind it, but I don't know a lot about it, and I don't think others know a lot about it. On top of the differences between God the Father and Jesus, on top of the Father's progression from fallen man to deity, we have his relationship to us as Heavenly Father. This doctrine touches on many, many other doctrines. Primarily, it gives rise to the doctrine of pre-existence. This doctrine states that matter existed from before the creation of the earth. That creation was the organization of the chaos into an order that God the Father made. That our spirits were created before creation by the Father and an eternal mother. Official Mormon teaching, going all the way back to Brigham Young, says that Adam is the Heavenly Father. He is the Ancient of Days. He is Michael the Angel. He is the natural and spiritual father of Jesus Christ. Young says this in a Deseret Weekly news column on June 18, 1873. How much unbelief exists in the minds of the Latter-day Saints in regard to one particular doctrine which I revealed to them and which God revealed to me, namely that God is our Father and God. Our Father Adam helped to make this earth. It was created expressly for him, and after it was made, he and his companions came here. He brought one of his wives with him, and she was called Eve because she was the first woman upon the earth. Our father Adam is the man who stands at the gate and holds the keys of everlasting life and salvation for all his children who have or ever will come upon the earth. But I could not find any man on earth who could tell me this, although it is one of the simplest things in the world, until I met and talked with Joseph Smith. What did Joseph Smith tell Brigham Young? Probably something close to what he records in his History of the Church. Daniel in the seventh chapter speaks of the Ancient of Days. He means the oldest man, our father Adam, Michael. He, Adam, is the father of the human family and presides over the spirits of all men. Back to Young's 1873 column. He attempts to head off criticism from non-Mormons and those who refuse to believe this doctrine by refuting possible objections. Well, says one, why was Adam called Adam? He was the first man on the earth and its framer and maker. He, with the help of his brethren, brought it into existence. Then he said, I want my children who are in the spirit world to come and live here. I once dwelt upon an earth something like this, in a mortal state. I was faithful. I received my crown and exaltation. Okay, so that's how the Mormons view God the Father. Let's look at Jesus Christ and his position in the Mormon faith. Jesus is the firstborn son of God the Father in the first estate. Ether 3.14 says, Behold, I am he who is prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people. Behold, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Father and the Son. In me shall all mankind have life, and that eternally, even they who shall believe on my name, and they shall become my sons and my daughters. Doctrines and Covenants 76 verses 11 through 14 say, We, Joseph Smith Jr., and Sidney Rigdon, being in the Spirit on the 16th day of February, in the year of our Lord, 1832, by the power of the Spirit our eyes were opened and our understandings were enlightened, so as to see and understand the things of God, even those things which were from the beginning before the world was, which were ordained of the Father 
through his only begotten Son, who was in the bosom of the Father even from the beginning, of whom we bear record, and the record which we bear is the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son whom we saw and with whom we conversed in the heavenly vision. Skipping down to Doctrine and Covenant 93, verse 21, And now verily I say unto you, I was in the beginning with the Father, and am the firstborn. Abraham, chapter 3, verses 27 to 28, says regarding Jesus being chosen as the Savior, And the Lord said, Whom shall I send? And one like unto the Son of Man answered, Here am I, send me. And another answered and said, Here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. And the second was angry, and kept not his first estate. And at that day, many followed after him. So here we have Jesus and Lucifer both volunteering to be the Savior, and the Father picking Jesus over Lucifer. So Jesus becomes the Savior, Lucifer becomes the devil. Milton R. Hunter writes in the Gospel Through the Ages, The appointment of Jesus to be the Savior of the world was contested by one of the other sons of God. He was called Lucifer, son of the morning. Haughty, ambitious, and covetous of power and glory, this spirit brother of Jesus desperately tried to become the Savior of mankind. Jess L. Christensen, in his Assure Foundation, writes, on first hearing, the doctrine that Lucifer and our Lord Jesus Christ are brothers may seem surprising to some, especially to those unacquainted with Latter-day Revelations. But both the scriptures and the prophets affirm that Jesus Christ and Lucifer are indeed offspring of our Heavenly Father, and therefore spirit brothers. Both Jesus and Lucifer were strong leaders with great knowledge and influence. But as the firstborn of the Father, Jesus was Lucifer's older brother. Ezra Taft Benson, who became president of the Mormon Church in 85 and served until his death in 94, taught, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints proclaims that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the most literal sense. The body in which he performed his mission in the flesh was sired by that same holy being we worship as God, our eternal Father. Jesus was not the son of Joseph, nor was he begotten by the Holy Ghost. He is the Son of the Eternal Father. And in This is My Doctrine, it's written, Of course, for Latter-day Saints, who hold the belief that Christ was literally conceived by God the Father, the idea of a virgin birth becomes a bit problematic, as it would presumably change Mary's status as a virgin. Bruce R. McConkie gives his resolution to this conundrum by redefining virgin to mean a woman who has not known a mortal man. She conceived and brought forth her firstborn son while yet a virgin because the father of that child was an immortal personage. So here we have all kinds of issues with who Jesus is in the Mormon faith. Continuing to beg the question, how can Mormons say that they are Christian when their beliefs in Christ are so far beyond what is orthodox. But that's just getting up to his birth. We haven't even talked about the Mormon idea that Jesus progressed from the first estate through this world and into life everlasting. In the Life and Teachings of Jesus and His Apostles Instructor's Manual, it's written, as Joseph Smith taught, Jesus was born with a veil of forgetfulness, common to all who are born to earth. But even as a child, he had all the intelligence necessary to enable him to govern the kingdom of the Jews, because he overcame the veil and came into communication with his heavenly father. This also goes into the idea of the age of accountability, that once 
you can work your way out of that veil of forgetfulness, then you too can be just like Jesus. Milton R. Hunter again in the Gospel Through the Ages. Although John the Baptizer recognized Jesus as a perfect man, the Master made it clear that it was absolutely necessary for even the Son of God to be baptized. He, like the least of us, must obey every law of the Gospel if he was to receive all the blessings predicated on obedience. Joseph F. Smith, Joseph Smith's grandson, wrote in the Gospel Doctrines, even Christ himself was not perfect at first. He received not a fullness at first, but he received grace for grace, and he continued to receive more and more until he received a fullness. Bruce McConkie, who we will hear many times throughout these sessions, wrote in The Mortal Messiah, Jesus kept the commandments of his Father and thereby worked out his own salvation and also set an example as to the way and the means whereby all men may be saved. Russell M. Nelson wrote in the November 95 issue of the Ensign that Jesus attained perfection following his resurrection is confirmed in the Book of Mormon. It records the visit of the resurrected Lord to the people of ancient America. There he repeated the important injunction previously cited, but with one very significant addition. He said, I would that ye should be perfect even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. 3 Nephi 12.48 this time he listed himself along with his father as a perfected personage. Previously, he had not. And they reference Matthew 5:48. Brigham Young, in the Journal of Discourses, writes, Consequently, every earth has its Redeemer, and every earth has its Tempter, and every earth and the people thereof in their turn and time receive all that they receive and pass through all the ordeals that we are passing through. So here, Jesus is just another Redeemer. He just happens to be our Redeemer for our planet, but other planets have other Redeemers. So there is no one only begotten Son of God ruling over the whole universe. And so we've talked about Jesus' pre-existence. We've talked about his birth and his life and death and exaltation. Now to put a complete bow around everything. Mormons also teach that not only was Jesus married, which Orthodox Christians do not teach, but that he had multiple wives so that they could have their polygamy. Brigham Young in the Journal of Discourses writes, The scriptures say that he, the Lord, came walking in the temple with his train. I do not know who they were unless his wives and children. In the seer, it's written, From the passage in the 45th Psalm, it will be seen that the great Messiah, who was the founder of the Christian religion, was a polygamist. The Messiah chose to take upon himself his seed, and by marrying many honorable wives himself, show to all future generations that he approbated the plurality of wives under the Christian dispensation, as well as under the dispensations in which his polygamist ancestors lived. Orson Hyde in the Journal of Discourses, says, It will be borne in mind that once on a time there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And on a careful reading of that transaction, it will be discovered that no less a person than Jesus Christ was married on that occasion. 
If he was never married, his intimacy with Mary and Martha and the other Mary also whom Jesus loved must have been highly unbecoming and improper to say the best of it. And Jedediah M. Grant, also in the Journal of Discourses, writes, The grand reason for the burst of public sentiment and anathemas upon Christ and his disciples causing his crucifixion was evidently based upon polygamy, according to the testimony of the philosophers who rose in that age. A belief in the doctrine of a plurality of wives caused the persecution of Jesus and his followers. We might almost think they were Mormons. So this is the idea of God, especially when we come to the Heavenly Father and to Jesus Christ. Next time, we will go into the Holy Ghost and into the gifts that the Holy Ghost gives to the people. One programming note for this, because of my time constraints and things going on with the coronavirus and messing up things at work and home and all kinds of different reasons for it, I've moved these Mormon Mondays to bi-weekly so that I have the time to properly prepare them as I would like them to be prepared and presented to you. So Mormon Mondays, as you have seen, this is two weeks from the last one, will be every two weeks so that I can properly and fairly give their side of the story when talking with them about what they believe, teach, confess. As we also try to tell them what we believe, teach, and confess. So until next time, this is Pastor Doug Minton saying that he wishes God's richest blessings and health upon each of you as you wrestle with theology.